Heavenly Father, we do thank you. We thank you that we could come together as a people and study your word. Uh, let's, in a Sunday school setting where uh, we can uh, raise our hands, we can go back and forth, we can listen to others, give insight, uh, ask questions. So much interaction from the body of Christ that we, we enjoy, that we, we need in growing up together. And we just thank you for the church, the bride of your son. We thank you for the bridegroom himself and what he has done and made possible that this relationship could be one of such loving interaction, dependence upon our Savior, the one who made reconciliation with God possible. Father, we thank you for the person of your Holy Spirit. We pray that the, that the Holy Spirit, which indwells each of us, lead and guide us in all knowledge and understanding that we might grow in our fear of the Lord and grow in our imaging your Son and honoring you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Okay. First things first, I want to start off with a correction from last week. Last week I made a statement that said that uh, uh, it was a man's decision, it was the Israelites' decision to send spies in. That was incorrect. I spent the week trying to figure out where I got that from, and I came up with zeros. God absolutely is the one who sent the spies in. Or directed them to send the spies in. Robert, what were you going to say? Maybe. I love when the body of Christ surrounds those who are in a fallen state with such love. Yeah, I'm doing it in that, my person today. So I just want to make sure that, that that correction was made. And then let's move on to Joshua. Because we're actually going to see the spies in Joshua again for a second time here. And so what I'd like to do today been thinking about, okay, last week was good. It was my first week into this study. Pastor Pete has been leading the study uh, uh, so far. Um, But I'd like to change it up. I'd like to give us a background on the book and then get into the weeds of the book. In other words, let's get an overview. So if you'll do me a favor, flip to the infograph on the back. Let me start with this because this does a good job. This is just a narration of what this is, uh, a walking down the story of, or the book of Joshua, and understanding it. So I'm going to have to jump you around in different places because this doesn't work the way uh, our Western style of reading from left to right. This doesn't work perfectly like that. So starting the, it's the book of Joshua, starting in the top left corner. So we have the story so far. We've got Abraham. God pulls him out of uh, uh, one person out of the nations by which he's going to uh, bring blessings to all the nations, or the, what he calls the families, all the families of the earth. Um, they don't know much more than that. Uh, the story is going to o- unfold over time, but that blessing is actually going to be salvation. At this point, we know it as the word blessing. Uh, then uh, to the right, you see the uh, chain and the picture of the nation of Israel. They're, they are enslaved in Egypt. So we move forward 400 years, and, then we, and we've got our friend Moses at the bottom there. And you move down from there. Moses, um, we've got Mount Sinai in the picture. This is the mount uh, uh, where they meet with God. They are given the, the covenant commands. And then they are taken out into the wilderness on a journey that's supposed to take them to the promised land. And they uh, initially do not obey. So you're dropping directly below that. You see that the message is, um, is to obey. This is the last part of Deuteronomy. You're getting ready as the new generation to do what God called you to do. I got rid of the whole um, rebellious generation. The theme is obedience. And it's interesting. 
It's not just for their benefit. When you take it up another 10,000 feet, the purpose of creating this nation um, in line with bringing the blessing of the, coven of the Abrahamic covenant, the blessing to all the peoples, is that Israel is supposed to show the world who their God is. The world can know Yahweh by Israel's obedience and uh, relationship with him. So that's the, 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 the means of knowing, salva- or of knowing God, a little bit of a, a thread of salvation in there um, by way at this point in the story. Okay, then now let's jump over. You've got to take a jump, not down. You've got to go right and head over to uh, chapters 1 through 5 in this little infogram. You've got Joshua leads Israel there. You've got Moses. Um, notice a little headstone there. Um, he is out of the picture. He, is, he has died. Um, Joshua is the new Moses. And so that's important to understand. He's the new leader. He's the new, um, you're going to see in today's study, he's the new prophet, the one who speaks on God's behalf and gives instruction. And they're to obey the commands of the Torah, which are the covenant commands. The Torah is the way that God is laying out. This is how you interact with me. So that's what the first five books were supposed to lay out. You moving to the right, the sending in of the spies. What's interesting is you've got uh, Rahab, that little itty-bitty picture of a woman there. It's very hard to see some of the text because I could only blow it up so much. Um, Rahab recognizes the God of Israel. She is a Canaanite that is... uh, that recognizes who God is and is in, brought into the people of Israel. A very important concept in an individual setting because it's going to happen again in the story. That though they are there to bring God's judgment on the Canaanites, who were a wicked people, we're going to see that in a minute, um, you still have God saying, but some Canaanites I will allow to come in. So we see salvation being offered to the Gentiles, a concept that is not just new to the New Testament. Okay, then we've got the Israelites. Interesting enough, the Israelites, they're crossing the Jordan River, just like the Red Sea. We have a crossing. It's a, remember, when they're, they're, they're crossing the river, or I'll say the Red Sea, it's a picture of a new beginning. We've got the, the creation kind of... Uh, wording and the creation pictures of the elements in play again and, and the use of water being divided to create new land. There's a birth of something new. So we saw that when the people were exiting Israel, or excuse me, Egypt, and now they're getting ready to go into the land. And so there's that picture again that they should have. So our biblical theology is big. We remember that this is a, a, a picture back unto uh, creation itself and what uh, the relationship was designed to be. And we're also headed to where it's supposed to be uh, in order to be restored. Okay, then you, when you get to 5, chapter 5 there, you see the picture of Joshua and the angel. But you see to the right there, there's an arrow going up. I want to go to the arrow going up before we go to talk about uh, the Joshua and the angel of the Lord. So if you look up, it says, First, in chapter 5, chapter 5 is a pivotal chapter. You've got, first they deal with looking back. Well, what are they supposed to do? Well, in order to be the people of God, they're supposed to, and to be a part of the covenant, they have to be identified with the covenant by way of circumcision. So the whole generation gets circumcised. Um, and then you have the, the, the first Passover is observed. 
So we see that which was God has established before now being played out now. So we have a, a looking back component, but we also have a looking forward component. You've got Israel versus the Canaanites, and you see the, the line through it. It's a circle with a line through it. Is that really what's going on? And, or is this, a God, is this God's battle plan going on? Is this something bigger than just the, uh, the Israelites removing the Canaanites, and it's interesting, it would be wrong for me to say it that way. I just said the Israelites removing the Canaanites. This is what what we're going to see in Joshua. uh, God goes out of his way to make sure that everyone understands it's God doing the removing, the judging and the removing. If they think it's them, they fail, and we're going to see that a couple times. So we can now look back down to chapter 5 there where you've got Moses pointing at the angel of the Lord and he says are you for us or, uh, or for our enemies and he says neither I'm the angel of the Lord interesting pivotal this is saying this is asking the question Joshua this is Joshua is saying are you on our side or are you an enemy and God flips it around by saying neither and the, the, the neither flip this is now what's implied it's not explicit is Joshua are you for me or are you for you? Pivotal, because you're going to see that show up in the very last. We all know, some of us have signs in our house that say, that quote, Joshua 24, 15. As for me in my house, we will serve the Lord. So we see that develop in chapter, in chapter 5, that God wants the people to be getting that in their face, that they understand, look, you're seeing, you're too far down in the weeds. This is an issue of you not just of the people being removed. Are you going to serve me? Those people aren't going to serve me. That's why they're being removed. So then you continue on in chapter 6 through 12 as you move down. It says uh, battles with the Canaanites. And you see uh, contrast. Uh, Rob Roy and Pete uh, helped in the last, uh, what do we call it, postscript. When the last sermon I gave on what, what's going on here between the contrast between the Amalekites and Jethro showing up. And, and really it was a contrast. There was, God was using contrast to show the two different aspects. One group of people wants a war with God. Another group of Gentiles wants to be a part of the people of God. Well, we start to see more and more contrast being used. Joshua uses it a lot. I, I should say God uses it a lot in the, in the book of Joshua. So we have the battle with the Canaanites. You have one battle, Jericho, and you can see underneath it, it shows God's faithfulness. And it's totally God doing it. I mean, these priests are walking around singing and blowing the horns and whatnot. I mean, who's not going to, you want me to do what? And this is our battle plan? Why wouldn't someone pick me off with an arrow at the top of the wall? Why would I do that? I'm going to put myself in plain view and, you know, and it's totally God doing it. And then you see the, the battle of Ai in chapter 7 and 8 is El, uh, Israel's failure. Uh, Achan takes some of the spoil, and, it's a, and because of that, it's a total rout. Not, not, not supposed to do this. this happen this way. And so you have the contrast. Are you, gonna, are, you gonna, are you for me, Joshua, or Israelites, or hello, all of us here in this church? Are you for me or against, or, or are you for you? I'll put it that way. And Achan was for him. And so Achan took of the spoils of war. So we have the, the contrast there where there's defeat. Um, so in the, the, the point is to inherit the land, Israel must be obedient. Then you move right to, the, uh, to chapter 9. 
and we have the Gibeonites, and now we don't have just Rahab being incorporated into the Israelite people. We have all of the Gideonites, Gibeonite people being incorporated into the people of God. So we see that this is the largest scale of Gentiles being brought into the family of God. And then you get to uh, uh, chapters 10 and 11, and you have this contrast again. First group, it wants to be a part of the people of God. The other people want to destroy this other group. All the Canaanites want to destroy the people of God. So what are they getting? They're getting God's judgment. And you see all in chapter 12, it lays out all the victories. All of these victories are an emphasis on God's do, God doing the defeat or bringing about the defeat of the, of the uh, Canaanites. So it's, it's further ratcheting up. It's not you guys, it's me. And then now, look all the way back to where on the, our little box in the middle there. It says chapters 6 through 12, and you'll see the arrow that moves to the left. What about all these battles with the Canaanites? What's going on? Why, are, why is God having... Why didn't he just ask him to move and they obeyed and everyone in the, in the land of Canaan, the promised land, just move out and allow God's people to come in. What is this, what is interpreted oftentimes, this, this bloodshed, this, this, this God can't be a God of love because there's so much bloodshed, there's so many people being killed. If he really loved these people, he would have just loved, lived side by side with them. What's going on in this setting? So this is what this box shows. So you've got um, God's justice on human evil being carried out here. So for a very real understanding, whether it's justice carried out in this situation as a descriptive picture, not a prescriptive picture. We don't, we're not the people of the Crusades. We don't go and, and carry out God's justice on the world because we think that's, gonna, that's the way we, we, we bring, we remove evil from the world. No, we're not part of the Crusades mentality. Um, but God used this people at this time, his people, to carry out the justice that these people were deserving of. And the justice, look at point number one underneath there, why the Canaanites? Um, first, uh, they were a people that were talked about way back in the covenant with Abraham that there will come a day when, I, uh, when they have, their iniquities have been filled. In other words, the, these Canaanites have, have, have come to the point where it's to the brim done. These people need punishment now. They are a cancer to my plan of salvation, and they will, if allowed, they will pollute my people, and I do not want my people polluted by this, this immoral people. So you've got moral corruption by the Canaanites, and one of the things that's interesting about the moral corruption that God talks about specifically is he is not happy with sexual immorality, the perverting sexually of these people. And I cannot help but think about our society. And I'm talking planet-wide. We are a disgusting, gross people. And I'm not suggesting connections here. I'm just been saying God hates where we are right here because he obviously hates it here. And in fact, it, um, it gets to, it's interesting, when you have such a perverted sexual mindset, what does it lead to? To the right right there? Child sacrifice. We have abortion the, the, the number of people that are killed or that die every year on this planet is exponentially unborn children. That's the folk, that's, that is top. And yet we, we, we think it's some right to have. Anyway, so that, those are the two things that the Canaanites are responsible for, and he's going to remove them so they don't pollute his people. Um, did God, gener uh, did, in number two there, did God initiate uh, 
a genocide. I think this is helpful. There are different takes on this, and I, I think that by, by reading your Bible, you can see that some things don't, don't line up with a literal understanding of what God's commands are. Let me give you an idea. God first tells the, the Israelites to drive them out. Then he says, totally destroy the Canaanites. Then he says, not, do not intermarry with them. What are they, how can you intermarry with the people that's totally destroyed? Do you see? Some of this language is hyperbolic. Some of this language is, it's the language of the, of the East to say that you give an, an impression of the level of, of wickedness of the people by talking in terms that, that would lead you to understand that there's no value in them, just wipe them out. They are an absolute pestilence to mankind. And yet, they're still there because there are some peoples within there. Remember, God is still saving the Gentiles. He's allowing some to come in. So they are supposed to, to, to drive them out, and they don't, and we'll see their problem with that. But this idea, if you, got the, if you have the concept that God is, is telling them everyone is to be killed by way of decree, everyone in Canaan, you, you're missing. You've, you've got a wrong understanding. You've taken something too literal. And I could see how you'd get there, but, that, but you're not understanding the, the, the way the literature of the ancient Near East works. Okay. And then you get to number three, unique moment in history. Uh, this, he's just pointing out that this is descriptive, not prescriptive, what is occurring to the Canaanites. So don't use this to, to say, okay, we're on our, our high horse and we need to go remove everybody that's evil in our land today by killing them. Okay, and now jump back over to chapter 13 to the right. It says 13 to 22, right to the right of point number two and three. Joshua divides up the land. And he says it would be, uh, the, the narrator here is giving you a picture that it'd be very easy for us to, real, to hear all of this division of the land and get bored with the details. But if you are a Jew or if you are a Christian, I'll put it this way, God is the God of the minutia, of even the smallest of details. He takes care to fulfill his promises to the nth degree. And that's where we take... Uh, uh, refuge in. God sees the little things in our life that are painful with us. God is absolutely involved in the details. Um, let's see. And then you see in the bottom right corner there with a picture of Abraham, fulfillment of God's promise to Abraham. That's what's happening with the, with the uh, dividing up the lands to, to the, um, all the different tribes. And then in 23 and 24, Joshua's final words, um, there's faithfulness in the Torah, life and blessing in the land. Or, here's our contrast again, unfaithfulness and divine justice and exile. So what are they going to do and really what are we going to do in our, our day? So um, let's go ahead and flip it over now and take a look at some of what we can uh, understand about some of the, this chapter, uh, getting down in the weeds a little bit. And, uh, I, I liked what the author did this. And by the way, this is the author. Again, this is a biblical theology introduction to the Old Testament, the gospel promised edited by Miles V. Van Pelt. This is required reading for the seminary that uh, Pete and PJ and I are all part of. And so um, the book isn't just something, I'm, uh, what I'm getting at is the book is, is something that the seminary gave us, and I'm finding that the, my second time through the book, I'm seeing things I have, didn't see when I took the course. 
and I'm appreciative even more so to the, these writers. And one of them is this graph right here. Take a look at the, or this chart? That, what, what, table, there we go, yeah. Um, in fact, I had to recreate the table, and I did a couple different things. I, I put in the word, word Old Testament and New Testament, so there's absolute clarity. Take a look at this. So moving from left to right, you've got covenant prologue or introduction. That's the book of Genesis. Now, the book of Genesis is part of the law. It's part of the five books. So he's, what he's doing here is just saying that, look, if you're trying to understand Genesis, understand it as an introduction to the story so you, you really get a grasp of knowing uh, what's going on. Without, I was talking to Dennis. No, not Dennis. I was talking to Gerald this morning. And Gerald was saying, man, I'm reading Genesis in a different way, and I'm realizing that if I, if I don't understand Genesis, I'm going to miss out on so much of the Bible. And that is true, because it's the intro. It's what lets us understand and gives us so many pillars. It gives us all the seeds that are, that are germinating over the course of the Bible. Then you've got the law. And what I want you to see that I had not seen before until I took this course was this. Notice the, the law, the prophets, and the writings I, um, all line up Old Testament, New Testament. There is a second giving of the law in the Gospels in the New Testament. You see the prophets and that division, that understanding of the prophets, those who speak on God's behalf, in the, in the Acts of the Apostles, as we know the book of Acts, and uh, Pastor Pete's going through that in our uh, uh, time and sermon study. And then we have the writings, all that God has given us for covenant life. How do we do this and honor God? There's Old Testament, and then there's New Testament. And you see, wow, what a beautiful picture of symmetry, of, God, of God's He's not this, this God that is the Old Testament God and the New Testament God. This is the story being retold. This is the, the laying down of these pillars again for us as the New Testament people. And so I just wanted you guys to, to see how that all lines up so beautifully um, with our Old and New Testament and have an appreciation for that. It's interesting. Some people would put Joshua in what they call, they categorize it, not the prophets. They would call him a... Uh, uh, oh, then the, the historical books of the Bible, which is fine. We're just using categories to understand different things. But Joshua is the new Moses. Moses was God's instrument to communicate to the people. And so Joshua is a prophet. And so when you're reading this, understand Joshua as the new, as the, the new Moses, the new prophet. Okay, um, the title is based on the principal human character, Joshua, not necessarily the author full stop, all the audience gasps for air and goes, that can't be. It's not saying that Joshua didn't write the book. It's saying that the book isn't necessarily written because Joshua is the author of the book. The book narrates what happens under Joshua's leadership as the prophet of God, which is interesting because you start to realize that this, there might be things here that would indicate that Joshua didn't write everything in the book of Joshua. In fact, PJ, um, I, I was going to um, give you a heads up, and I forgot to. I want to read uh, Joshua 24:26a, and then 20, uh, and then I want to take it all the way to 30. Uh, actually, Joshua 24:26 to 30. Let's just do that. Um, if you can just, would you mind reading that? Yeah, no problem. <clears throat> Joshua 24. 
26 through 30. Mm -hmm. And Joshua wrote these words in the book of the law of God, and he took a large stone and set it up there under the, um, under the uh, terebinth that was sitting in the sanctuary of the Lord, of Yahweh. And Joshua said to all the people, Behold, this stone shall be a witness against us, for it has heard all the words of Yahweh that he spoke to us. Therefore it shall be a witness against you, lest you deal falsely with your God. So Joshua sent the people away, every man to his inheritance. After these things, Joshua, the son of Nun, the servant of Yahweh, died, being 110 years old. And they buried him in his own inheritance at Timnath-Serah, which is in the hill country of Ephraim, north of the Mount of Gaish. Okay, so clearly states that Joshua wrote down a lot of stuff. And this is, that's included in the book of Joshua. But you also have either, again, Joshua uh, saw his death and wrote in advance of his death, or I think the more likely is um, one of the elders, it talked about the elders in that passage, um, wrote about what happened to Joshua under the inspiration of God. But you also have what we talked about last week, we, uh, compiler, or sometimes used as a word called an editor, also inspired by God. Look at how many times. There are 11 times, and it could be 12 if you separate uh, chapter 8, 28 to 29, where the wording is used to this day. Well, to this day, we understand that that's typically somebody down the line who's writing about since then, since what happened here, this is still the case now, to this day. So there's, there's a, that's 11 or 12 times that phrase is used. So it's possible that there is a compiler involved here that is helping to compile this information in this uh, literary format so that we'll see those. Remember we talked about contrasts, and we'll see some of the, the deeper themes coming to bear. God uses uh, uh, compilers or editors to bring to bear that which he gave in narrative form so that we can understand it in a, in a greater detail to a, a deeper level in the books we have within the Bible. So that's what, what's uh, potentially going on there. Um, and then we have the date from 1406, which is uh, uh, we see the, the, the end of, that's B.C., the end of the wilderness journeys into the 13th uh, century B.C., where we have the uh, now Joshua. And again, it's referred to as the conquest. I'm okay with that word after realizing that the, all the emphasizing God does on that he does it, as long as you understand that it's God's conquest and not man's conquest. It's not, it's not man achieving the conquest. Okay, so then let's look at some of the themes. And then uh, I'm, I'm going to ask you some questions about, and I want you thinking about uh, what other themes, what, what connections does Josh, do we see from Joshua being made in the New Testament? So as you're hearing some of this, I've already given you the narrative of the, uh, the narration of the whole a book, an overview of it, so you can maybe make some connections here. Let's look at some of these themes. You have uh, judgment. We talked about that, the judgment and the removal of those who rebel against Yahweh. We, that's certainly a theme in this whole thing. Uh, but you also have uh, these, uh, Pete, couplet? Is that a right word? Am I saying that right, Pete? Couplet? As a word? Okay, for some reason that just didn't sound right. The accomplishment and, and rest would be coupled together. They're separate, but they're joined. So when you see accomplishment, 
uh, Yahweh's given of, of the land to the Israelites as promised in the Abrahamic covenant. Um, again, Yahweh's giving, not the Israelites taking. Completely uh, intentional wording. And then you have the rest, uh, the, the other half of the, couple, of the coupling. Entrance into this phase occurs when Yahweh provides Israel with control over the land before the, dis, the, the total displacement of the Canaanites. So Joshua is letting us understand this thing called rest. And this thing called rest doesn't mean inactivity. It has an, a component of control over. We can rest because we have control over the land. We have, we're in the promised land, we have control, but we still have more work to do. Because what you see in that bullet point next is, it still took several centuries for Israel to expel their enemies, the Canaanites, from all the promised land. Those that were infecting or polluting the lives of the Israelites. So the assessment, rest for Joshua means rest from oppression by Israel's enemies. Or you can say it the same way I said it before. Rest is an idea of the Israelites, by God's doing, are now in control versus an oppressor being in control. So the question I want to ask you guys, I'll get you on your sanctification uh, thinking, that mindset. What connections can be made to the New Testament's understanding of rest as it relates to sanctification? So as you see words like uh, uh, enemies or uh, Canaanites, and you see in, in my descriptors here, control, what, what do you think would be parallels in the New Testament to the understanding of enemies? What is our greatest enemy in our, our day? And notice I said what is, I didn't say what people are. And how does that, what does rest look like as it relates to control over our enemies? They're no longer in control over us. What's the, the from a sanctification component, can anyone kind of help articulate that? Robert, you want to give it a shot? I'm just trying to draw everyone into a little bit deeper theology here and how it connects to the New Testament. In right before Joshua 22, at the end of Joshua 20, 21, it said, uh, The Lord gave them rest on every side, just as he had sworn to their fathers. Not one of all their enemies had withstood them, for the Lord had given all their enemies into their hands. Not one word of all the good promises that the Lord had made to the house of Israel had failed. All came to pass. Right? So, they're in control of the land. None of their enemies can withstand them. There's still work to do, but the land has been secured. Parallel in the New Testament is Christ came, lived, died, rose again, ascended. He's sitting on the throne in control while his enemies are being made his footstool. Hmm. So there's work to be done, but yet control has been secured. So the world, the flesh, the devil, Satan, 
um, is under control. There's still work to do. There's still fights. But, but the war has been won. The victory has been declared. These additional skirmishes um, need to occur, but the result is certain. And so as we work through our sanctification, we have the Lord's promise that it is guaranteed, that it is his will that we would be sanctified. Um, and as we work through this continuing battle, like with the Israelites, it's not a matter of Israel versus Canaan or us as Christians versus non-Christians or even us versus the devil. It's the Lord who dwells in us, who is sanctifying us, the one who is protecting us, the one who is using us as his instruments for his glory in this battle, right? And so we're able to strive for the Lord, as Paul says, through this energy that works in me, but, you know, through the, through the Holy Spirit. Um, it leads to activity, not inactivity, but it leads to an activity that's based on faith by a power that's outside of us. Um, and we have hope because of the promise that's been given to us, uh, that's been um, secured. So sometimes you can, like with the Israelites, you can look and think that uh, maybe God hasn't fulfilled his promise because there's still work to do. Mm. When in reality, because there's work to do, it's evidence that God has already fulfilled his promise. Amen. Anybody else? Any other comment? Glenda has a comment. Well, this might be one that's just more practical, but the New Testament epistles, uh, many of them talk about false teachers. In fact, as I read it, I thought, okay, I read that in this epistle, uh, Galatians. So there's a lot of warnings about false teachers. So I would compare that with enemies in the Old Testament where God kept saying, stay away from them because don't go after their uh, pagan culture. Hmm. So in the New Testament, it's... How do you know if there's a false teacher? Well, you have to know the word of God. So false teachers would be an enemy that we have to watch out for. That's, maybe I'm off, but that's no, what no, I thought that, about. That, no, there are many connections. That's kind of the pollution. Uh, the false teachers bring in the pollution that bring, brings about disobedience within the people of God. So I think that's absolutely. So that's another, another way. There's more than one connection here. Um, anybody else? If you are a Christian, God has secured the victory over sin. Sin no longer is an oppressor that has control over you. It will try and harass you. You are in a state of rest. You are in a state of control by way of what God has done to defeat sin. You have work to do in the sanctification of defeating the enemy of, your, of our soul's sin every single day. There are battles to be had until Christ's return and separates out judges and separates out sin. 
But sometimes we don't understand that we actually are in a state of rest. We get this idea that it just means something physical rest or it gets too theological, meaning that it's too complicated. I can't get my head around it. The simplicity is we can understand the rest that God promised through Jesus. Jesus Christ is our Sabbath rest because what he accomplished over his defeat of sin and thereby we walk out of rest not out of exhaustion, if you will, using a contrast picture. I rest in what Christ has already done and know that I have a battle to face, but I rest assured or secure, using Rob Roy's terminology, in knowing that I can defeat by God's power that sin still left in my life. I don't have to be overwhelmed by the attempts of the harasser to become an oppressor because God has already defeated the oppressor. Well, to me, that I, when it was interesting, I didn't get that before going through the, the study. That was one where it was just where you go, thank you, God. I, I appreciate that additional angle. And it was uh, again the, the author, God's word, some of the, the connections that were just kind of like, I need to be reminded about that in the battle. When the battlefield is overwhelming, I should be in a mindset of of rest, of appreciation for the rest, the control that God has given. Uh, that God has established and that I can use by way of his grace to fight the enemy. Uh, PJ, you were going to say something. Yeah, I think the model we have is the Garden of Eden before sin entered the world. There's still work to be done in a fight Mm. against allowing the serpent in and letting sin to enter the world, even though it's a time without sin even um, in in a more idealistic sense. So, uh, I think we've seen this model before. Just because sin has been conquered by Christ does not it mean there's not work to be done Amen. Um, for now. It's that priestly role, keeping out of the garden, which is what Adam was supposed to do. Keep the sin out of the garden. Not let the snake enter in and bring sin in, but, but keep it out. We're supposed to be out of this holy temple. This is the garden temple now. Our, our, the indwelling location of the Holy Spirit, we need to keep sin out. And interesting enough, in the same respect, the greatest sin is within. So we need to continue to fight the sin within and remove it. So praise God with that. All right, two last components. We have probation and warning. Let's do this. Let's, um, probation is pretty straightforward. He, he's dealing with uh, uh, the tribes of Judah more specifically on that. excuse me, not the tribes of Judah, the tribes uh, on the Transjordan. And then he's dealing with the warning. Uh, Someone, anybody want to read Joshua 23, 1 through 13? Anyone want to volunteer for that? We got uh, um, our our pianist (laughs) that would like to use her mouth as well as her fingers. Let's go. Okay, Joshua 23, 1 through 13. A long time afterward, when the Lord had given rest to Israel from all their surrounding enemies, and Joshua was old and well advanced in years, Joshua summoned all Israel, its elders and heads, its judges and officers, and said to them, I am now old and well advanced in years, and you have seen all that the Lord your God has done to all these nations for your sake. It is for the Lord your God who has fought for you, for it is the Lord your God who has fought for you. Behold, I have allotted to you as an inheritance for your tribes those nations that remain, 
along with all the nations that I have already cut off from the Jordan to the great sea in the west. The Lord your God will push them back before you and drive them out of your sight, and you shall possess their land, just as the Lord your God promised you. Therefore, be very strong to keep and do all that is written in the book of the Law of Moses, turning aside from it neither to the right hand nor to the left, that you may not mix with these nations remaining among you, or make mention of the names of their gods, or swear by them, or serve them, or bow down to them. But you shall cling to the Lord your God, just as you have done to this day. For the Lord has driven out before you great and strong nations. And as for you, no man has been able to stand before you to this day. One man of you puts to, f to flight a thousand, since it is the Lord your God who fights for you, just as he promised you. Be very careful, therefore, to love the Lord your God. For if you turn back and cling to the remnant of these nations remaining among you and make marriages with them so that you associate with them and they with you, know for certain that the Lord your God will no longer drive out these nations before you, but they shall be a snare and a trap for you, a whip on your sides and thorns in your eyes until you perish from off this good ground that the Lord your God has given you. I mean, how is that not applicable to us today as far as a, a, a warning to us? I mean, even you see the New Testament and uh, 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 7 is the marriage chapter. You can only uh, marry in the Lord. Don't intermarry. It's telling the Christian. I understand there's people that get that come to Christianity after they've been married or, or they, there are people that, I know people that will say, oh, that doesn't part that doesn't apply to us today. That was in Paul's day. You can you can marry a non-believer. No, you're missing some big. The you made some big theology mistakes. You didn't see this happening all along in the Bible. This is the story being retold. So there's a lot of application. I'll leave us with this: the New Testament perspective. And I love the way he says this because we don't want to be literalists, where we see everything so woodenly that we don't understand that the New Testament is a in many, in many understandings, the greater, on a, on a, I don't want to use this word, but I, I, I'm lacking right now, a, a spiritual connection back. It's not a one-for-one one in the physical connection back. Just like we can see our enemies, uh, they saw them as Canaanites, we see them as sin is our enemy. Do you see what I'm saying as far as the spiritual connection? All right, so listen to the, what the author states. The New Testament's non-ethnic, dealing with ethnicity in the Old Testament, with the Israelites, non-territorial. We live in a kingdom that's an invisible kingdom here on earth. The United States of America is not a theophany, excuse me, a theocratic nation, a nation that is governed by God. I said that wrong. A spiritual paradigm provides clear boundaries for legitimate applications of the theology of Joshua to the church. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for this chance to study. I pray that uh, we're, uh, we're challenged by your spirit this day, that this kind of digs a little bit in us throughout as we, as we get a chance to, whether it's in our time of fellowship, in our fellowship meal, or as we're talking with our friends or with our spouse or whoever it might be, just other people in the church, our church family. That these things, we, we, we want to make connections because the connections are there. Let this be that which you caused us to meditate on.
that we might draw closer in our understanding of you and thus draw closer in our love for you, our fear of you, our desire to choose obedience over disobedience. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.